We've seen, um, just by way of review, and I, I think this is important to bring this out, just to remind you that we do have a lot of evidence that Job lived in the time either right before Abraham or during the same time as Abraham. It's interesting, and we're going to see this, that Job makes reference to both Adam and the great flood. But he does not mention Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. He never mentions Israel, and he never mentions the law. And with a book that's 42 chapters long, the bulk of that being a theological conversation, there's no way those things don't come up unless uh, Job was during the time of the patriarch there uh, before or during Abraham. And so he didn't have Scripture to look at. He didn't have the Old Testament. Um, and really what he knew had been passed down from his ancestors, obviously Adam, Noah. And so he wasn't totally ignorant to God, but he certainly couldn't you know, open a, even a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures and read them. And so... It's important to understand that as we get into this, because even tonight we're going to get into the more poetical side of Job. And, you know, there's some things said in Job, especially from Job's three friends, that are just not accurate concerning God. They're not biblically correct. And so, but when we understand where they're coming from, then we know that we don't have to take Job so literally that we say, oh, well, it's in the Bible what they said is correct, and this I'm just going to go with this. No, we have to understand what the context is. And we've seen clearly that uh, God was the one that instigated Job's trials. He was the one that brought Job up to Satan not once but twice. And Satan told him that if you would um, you know, take your protective hand off of his blessings, his children, his livestock, his income, you know, let me take all that, he'll curse you to your face. Well... Uh, God said, okay, you can do that, but don't touch him or his life. Of course, instead of cursing God, Job worshiped God. Well, in chapter 2, God brings uh, Job up to Satan again. This time Satan says, okay, this time let me, let me touch his body. Let me touch his health, and then he'll curse you to your face. And, of course, um, that happened, and he got these horrible uh, oozing sores, basically, uh, very, very nasty, very uncomfortable. Um, he's literally scraping himself with a piece of pottery. I mean, it's, uh, he's just miserable. And, of course, his wife, instead of encouraging him, just you know, tells him, go ahead and curse God and die, which I, I pointed out last time, I believe this is a good indicator of how we're not really wrestling with flesh and blood, uh, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, as Ephesians 6 tells us, because isn't it amazing that Satan tells God, just just do this, he'll curse you to your face. And then Job's wife says, why don't you just curse him to his face? Where did that come from? <laughs> we know where it came from, don't we? And um, so tonight, just a little glimpse into Job's friends. We're not, Job's friends are not the main topic for tonight. And you know, I told you that Job was a different book. And we have to take it as it comes. And I'm, I'm definitely going to have to take more of a shotgun approach as opposed to a sniper approach, kind of like I do on Sunday morning. So we'll just take it as it comes. Uh, but tonight, really what I want to focus on is our response to trials. I mean, when we get in these heartbreaking situations, when the trials come, when the storms of life come, what is our response supposed to be? What, what is the Christian response to trials? 
Um, and so with that in mind, I just want to um, read uh, very quickly uh, Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 to give some context. And then we'll look at some things in chapter 3. But it said, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. Once again, thank you for the rain and the beautiful weather that followed. Lord, we do pray that you just would be magnified and glorified tonight. And Lord, that I would be hidden. Lord, we only see your word. And God, that you would encourage those that are in trials. But even for those that uh, may not be in a valley today, God, I pray that they might hide your word in their heart for the day uh, that they do find themselves in a trial. Lord, just fill me with your Holy Spirit. It to me a sin self and speak to us tonight. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're looking tonight at our response to trials. And uh, really, I'm not so focused on Job's friends tonight. We'll get to them and we'll be with them for a very long time. Um, but what I want you to realize from what we just read is his three friends, listen, for all the bad advice they gave, for all the wrong things they said, I believe they loved Job. They, they came to him, whereas everybody else seems to have forsaken him. We saw that last week. They came to him. And for the first seven days they were with him, they didn't speak a word. They wept with him. They waited for him to speak. But the most amazing thing about this text we just read is when they saw him, they didn't even recognize him. Y'all ever seen somebody that it was in such bad health that you didn't recognize them? That's a, that's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible uh, situation. And so it just brings to light how bad Job's situation was. And, and so um, the question tonight we're dealing with is what is the, I guess I could say air quotes, what is the Christian response to our trials? And I'm just going to, I don't really have a lot of alliteration tonight. I'm, I'm not three points in a poem. I just want to give you some things from the text that we're going to read tonight. And I would just say, first of all, no one gets to tell you how you're supposed to feel in a trial. Now, I'll be honest with you. Um, I don't know if I messed up by preaching through the book of Job right now or not. Because it's a lot of this is right where I'm living. And I identify with a lot of this stuff so much that I'm scared that I'm going to end up like being too personal or somehow make it about me. And I don't want to do that. So it may be better that I'm there and it may be worse that I'm there, but I'm, I'm there regardless. And, and nobody gets to tell you how you're supposed to feel in a trial. Now, obviously, if we're talking about, you know, jealousy or vengeance or, you know, something like that, you know, that's something we need to repent and give to God. There's no doubt about that. But I would say most of the time, our feelings are, are pretty lined up with where we're at in life. I mean, I know this is going to be real simple for you tonight, but, you know, Baptists have a way of messing this stuff up. But uh, this is real practical. I know this is going to shock you. 
But in scary situations, it's normal to feel afraid. In overwhelming times, it's normal to feel overwhelmed. In sad times, it's normal to feel sadness and grief. In happy times, it's pretty common to feel happy. In times of victory and success, it's normal to feel accomplished. And, you know, our reaction to our feelings, and I guess if you had a point, this may be point one. Our reaction to our feelings are more important than the feelings themselves. And, and nobody gets to tell you how you feel. The important thing is how we react to those feelings that we're not completely dominated by those feelings. And when we read about Job, we see that he was in a very bad way. We just saw that at the end of chapter 2. But what's interesting to me is when you read what Job said in chapter 1, and you compare that with what we're going to look at tonight in chapter 3, we almost wonder... If it's the same person doing the talking, can this possibly be the same person? And um, in fact, let's just look at chapter 1 and verse 20. What he said after he gets all the news about all of his children dying and him losing his livestock and his, most of his servants dying and all the things he faced. It, literally, he got that news at the same time. Verse 20 of, of chapter 1, it says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Those were common um, symbols of grief in that time, shaving your head and, and uh, you know ashes and all the, the things he did. Verse 21, it said, uh, he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charge God foolishly. So we see that and we say, wow, he literally lost pretty much everything in the same few minutes of his life. And not only is he not cursing God, but he's worshiping God. <laughs> I don't know if I'm there yet. I mean, how, how would we respond to that news? I mean, all your children just got killed in a car wreck. Oh, you, you just lost every cent you had in savings and you, you just lost your job and you know, I mean, how would how would you do with that? I don't I don't know. But Job worshipped. Uh, he didn't curse God. Well, now just uh, one chapter later, or I guess I could say two chapters later. But the next time we hear uh, Job here, let's look at chapter three and verse one. After this, after they had waited in silence for seven days with his friends here, it says, after this, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day, and Job spake and said. Let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. He is literally cursing his birth. He, have you ever heard that old saying, I wish I had never been born? That's exactly what he's saying. I would have been better off if I had never been born. How is this the same man in chapter 1? And the question is, is he wrong for saying those things? You know, some might say, how could Job do that? Well, i tell you how he was able to do that because he was being real. <laughs> I guess if you had a point to what's your necessary, what's the proper Christian response, be real with God and real with people. Um, I believe there's a ditch on either side of this issue as to how we're to respond to trials like this. The first ditch is what I would call a false piety that doesn't acknowledge the reality of suffering. This would be the super spiritual answer. Um, I've run into people like that before, and I'm honest, here, it doesn't seem like it's as much of a problem as it was in the South. 
I don't know why it seems to be a virtue in the South that everybody has to pretend like everything's okay all of the time. I mean, it's almost ingrained within us that you're not supposed to be a burden to somebody else. Don't, don't bother somebody else with your problems. And it's really kind of nauseating at times. And I see y'all shaking your head. They know. And, uh, but that doesn't do anybody any good. You, you know, and I'll be honest, the, the people in this world that I'm the most leery of is the people that are just so spiritual that they're not real. Like, I'm, I'm more comfortable around drunks than I am people that are su- just too super spiritual. Uh, I'll never forget as long as I live, when I was, this was back even before I was associate pastor at Little Sandy, I was just a member there. And we had one of our missionaries come in, and um, he he's a builder. I mean, he builds orphanages and churches all over the world. And uh, just an old Vietnam vet, just tougher than nails, just tell you like it is. And the first time, like my pastor knew him already, but the first time that he came to our church, one of the deacons of our church went up and greeted this missionary, and he was shaking his hand, introduced himself, and then he began, he proceeded to tell him all the things he did at church. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm head of the Sunday school board, I'm a deacon, I do this, and I do that, and I do this. (laughs) And in in mid-sentence, the missionary walked away from him and went straight to my pastor and said, you see that man right there? That man is a devil. You better watch him. And sure enough, he turned out to be a devil. That guy stabbed my pastor in the back and tried to get him ousted and caused all kind of division in the church. He was absolutely right. I've never forgotten about that. And ever, ever since then, when I come across somebody that basically introduces me and then tells me how spiritual they are, I'm, I'm, I'm watching them with both eyes. And um, when it comes to our trials... It is not spiritual to be too spiritual about where we are. It really doesn't do justice to the grief that we face. It's not real. It's not real. Our grief is real. And so we need to be real about that. There's a ditch where we're just too super spiritual. It's a false piety. But then I would say the ditch on the other side is a false hopelessness that doesn't acknowledge God. One ditch doesn't acknowledge our suffering, but the other ditch doesn't acknowledge God. We don't need to get stuck in either of those. And, you know, we live in a world that it seems like everybody wants something to be so prepackaged that we're either or. But I would say when it comes to our trials and our response to our trials, it is possible to have a both and in which we acknowledge both God and grief. And that's exactly what Job did. Now, this is super important right here. Job acknowledges his losses without denying God's right to take whatever he wanted. Uh, I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, Job might have cursed his day, but he never cursed his God. I thought that was pretty good. Um, We just need to be real with God and real with people. And, And what we have to remember here is that Job has already prefaced Everything that he is going to say by stating that God is God and he can take whatever he wants. And so now in chapter 3, he does get real. And with that in mind, understand we're about to read through chapter 3. And and, I mean, this is just, I tell you that the Bible is just a real book, isn't it? Because if it wasn't, if it was just written by men, this kind of stuff would have never made it in here. We've already seen not once but twice from God's own mouth, that Job was upright, he loved God, uh, he feared God, he shunned evil, 
There was none like him in all the land. So we know the character of Job. And yet it's this very man that God bragged on that we're about to see saved these very dark things. So with that in mind, let's, I'll just read through this and we'll pull some stuff out as we go. Look at verse 4. He says, let that, be, let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day, because it is uh, shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. I mean, he is literally cursing the day over and over and over in a multitude of ways. He is cursing the day he was born. He wished he could go back in time, and he wished he had died. We're going to see he wished he had died in the womb. He wished he had died on his mother's knees. He wished he would have died and not seen the day that he's seeing right now. This is... This is coming from a man that loves God? Well, that doesn't seem very pious, does it? What's wrong with Job? Well, he's being honest. He's being real. Um, look at verse 11. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? Or why the breast that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet? I should have slept. Then I had been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or as in hidden untimely birth I had not been, as infants which never saw light, uh, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. And so, uh, you know, we don't really totally comprehend what Job understood about the afterlife, but he did clearly believe in an afterlife. And he said, whatever it is, it's going to be infinitely better than this right here. He's wishing for death. He is wishing for the afterlife. He wants his pain to end. Anybody ever felt like that? Anybody ever just wanted to be out of a trial so bad you, you just didn't want to get out of bed? Anybody ever felt like that? I mean, Job's just being real. Aren't you glad that God recorded these things for us? I mean, if it wasn't for things like this, we would feel like we wouldn't measure up to somebody like Job. But it was just very honest. Uh, he's talking about how it would just be better if life ceased to exist. Verse 18, it says, There the prisoners rest together. There they hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and greater there, and the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery? And life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. I mean, to read this, I mean, if I'm just being honest, Job sounds suicidal here. He longs for death, but he can't find it. He longs for death more than hidden treasures. He wants to die that badly. And so can, can Christians get to that place? I believe they can. 
I mean, I think about Elijah in the cave. I mean, the, the very prophet that called down fire from the prophets of Baal and one threat from an evil queen and he's running for his life and he got in the cave and asked God to kill him. I'm all by myself and, you know, and, and he was a man of like passions as we are and yet he struggled with things. Um, I think about what Paul said. He said there was times in his life where he despaired even of life itself. And so I, I just do, I don't think that it does any good when we're just not real about our grief and our trials and our problems. Um, I don't understand pastors that'll get up in a pulpit and act like they've never had a bad day in their life. I don't understand that. It's not real. It's, it's just, it's, it's a lie is what it is. I don't know about y'all. I struggle with things. Man, I, I wrestle with things. I, I mean, I hate it. I, I identify with some of the things that Job is saying here. I get what he's saying. I mean, he's distraught. He's, he's lost everything. Everything he ever loved, everything he ever worked for is gone. And so he wants death more than even hidden treasures. But I will say this. Remember I told you that the way that you react to your feelings are more important than the feelings itself. Listen, if Job wanted to, he could have took his life. He could have took his life. I mean, how easy would it have been to take that little jagged piece of pottery and just turn it on in? I mean, how easy would that have been? But he didn't do it. He didn't allow his feelings to control his actions. And man, that's so important. Um, verse 22, it says, "...which it, uh, rejoice exceedingly and are glad." When, when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? For my sighing cometh before I eat and my roarings are poured out like the waters. I mean, he's just, his grief is uncontrollable. I think we can clearly see that. But here's something else that I really want you to know. And this is, I almost, I almost even hate to give a spoiler alert here. But I don't see how I can preach these last two verses in this chapter without bringing up uh, what happened. See, there's a bit of irony here because we as the reader have some information here that Job does not have. And for all the things that we don't even know in the, uh, from looking at the book of Job as to the why and all that, why God did it, there are some things we do know here. And this is pretty amazing to me. And, and I guess if you were to give another point here, as far as our trials go, is that we don't need to allow assumptions to get the best of us. Because assumptions always lead to fear. You know, I think it's human nature that when we don't have all the information, we fill in the blanks with negative things, don't we? When we don't have the information, if we're going to assume something about our future... Almost without exception, it's going to be negative. And, and I remember a, a dear friend of mine, Steve Southern, he was a, a church member at Little Sandy, and uh, we used to do morning devotions with the men every Sunday before we went to Sunday school. And he made the statement that in his experience, the worry about the end of a trial was always worse than the actual end of the trial. And I've never forgotten that. And we lose so much sleep and we toss and turn and we worry about the future because we assume that it's going to end badly. And Job does that here. Look at verse 25. He says, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, 
and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. So it says, the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me. Now, what what is he specifically talking about? Do, do we have the answer here for what he's talking about? I believe we do. I believe we know exactly what this great fear is that he mentioned. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, And it was so when the days of their feasting, talking about Job's children, the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctioned them, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually... Now, this is something that was pretty common for the era of the patriarchs as well. Um, the father and the husband would act as the priests of the home. You know, there was no uh, priesthood. There was no Levitical law. There was no sacrificial system or temple. And so this is what they would do on behalf of their family. And so he is concerned about their salvation. I, I don't know... Uh, what their character was like. We don't really have any information about who they were as people, but Job was concerned about their salvation. And he would pray to God on their behalf, and he would intercede on their behalf, and he was afraid they might die without God. Now, that's pretty interesting when we see that he said, for the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, his children are dead. And now he's wondering about their eternal state. Talk about torment. But we do have something very beautiful in the book of Job. I think it's one of the greatest hidden gems in the entire Bible. And if you're not paying attention, you might miss it. But with that in mind, now Job is afraid of where his children are. And the Bible actually answers that question. Let's go to Job 42, the last chapter of Job. Again, I hate to give a spoiler alert, but I don't think we can avoid this here. Job 42 and verse 10. And it said, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and everyone an earring of gold. Now listen to this. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and he had 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. Now I want you to think about this in your mind, verse 13. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And I want you to go back and look at this phrase in verse 10. It says, When the Lord turned the captivity of Job, when he prayed for his friends, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, double what he had. Now, this is what's so amazing about this. If you, if you go back and read the original list about how many um, asses and oxen and camels um, and, you, and you look at this list in Job 42, every single thing that's listed doubles, except for his kids. He had seven sons and three daughters that he lost. And at the end, he had seven sons and three daughters that he gained. 
Now, why didn't it say 14 sons and six daughters? Because he didn't lose those initial children. I believe they were in, I believe they were in paradise. I believe that. And I believe that is the comforting thing here. And see, Job, he said, Oh, the, the thing that I feared the worst, the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me. Of all the things he was suffering, the, the sores and, and uh, the loss of his servants and livestock and his income and all the friends that had abandoned him and the fact that his wife is giving him an earful. What he thought about the most was, Where's my children right now? And he was afraid of that, and yet God... In his mercy and grace, evidently had saved his children. And it seems that the greatest surprise would come when Job passed into the afterlife. Isn't that amazing? And so the the thing that we have to take away from this is we cannot be controlled with assumptions about the future or assumptions about things that we can't see or that we don't know. And so Job made a false statement. He said, the thing that I feared the most has come upon me, whereas we can look in hindsight in Job 42 and say, no, Job, that's not true. Let me show you this. (laughs) No, that's not true. And so we we don't need to allow assumptions create fear within us that drives us crazy. And, And I tell you, that's something I struggle with probably. If there's one thing that I've really on a personal level had to learn to do, it is literally to take things a day at a time. God, what do you want me to do today? What, what, am, what am I responsible for today? And that's it. I can't think about the future. Uh, you know, uh, Leah subscribes to these NDPH groups, and I, it's somewhat of a blessing and a curse because, you know, every now and again you'll see somebody that's had this, this condition, this headache, and these body aches for years and no relief, and they'll find the problem, and it's, I'm, I'm pain-free, and man, it's so encouraging to see that and to hear that, but then there's a lot of people that get on there and like, well, I just had my 30-year anniversary, I just had my 40 or 50-year, and it's, it's literally a life sentence, and I think, God, is that going to be us? And I can't do that. I, I can't. There, there's enough evil in today, sufficient for this day, and so we, we literally have to take things a day at a time. And, and you know, um, I, I was reading a story the other day that really reminded me. I, I, this is a good example of this, this truth. I want to ask you a question. If you could know the future, would you want to? If you had a button, so I really want to know. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that if Job had known, do you think it would have made him feel much better? Most of it probably not. And um, I was reading about this young lady. Her name was Karen. I cannot remember her last name. But, oh, Karen uh, Isley, I think, or Karen Mosley. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'll just say Karen Mosley. It's something like that. But her father died at a relatively young age of a disease called Hunter's disease. It's a, it's a chromosome disorder. And it's horrible. Like, as I, I'm reading the story, and I'm like, man, that just sounds so torturous. And... Um, you know, they begin to lose body function. They begin to lose their mind. And the pain is excruciating. They, they, it literally makes them go crazy. And what's so scary is um, a lot of times people, like the first generation that has it, they don't even know until they get up to like maybe 30s and then they get it. And then by the 40s, usually they're dead. Well, this particular man, uh, her Karen's father, uh, 
had her before he found out he had this disease. Well, because it is a chromosome disorder, she's got a 50-50 shot at getting the same disease and facing the same horrible fate. And she saw her father dying this horrible death. And she kept thinking to herself, is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to me? Well, they uh, not too long ago, they recently, I'm going to say probably 20 years ago, they developed a test to be able to find out if she has that gene. So every day of her life, she thinks about, is this going to be my fate? And I could find out right now if I wanted to. And she battled it for years, and finally she couldn't take it anymore. So she went and got tested, and she found out she has the gene. And now every day that goes by, she knows she's a day closer to that fate. And so, again, I ask you, if you could know the future, would you do it? And if you could, how much would that really help you? So I think the best thing to do is just take things a day day at a time and let God be God. Um, Because ultimately, I, I think the things we go through just make us appreciate heaven that much more anyway. So kind of as we come in for a landing here, I just kind of want to reiterate, uh, I think in our trials, we need to be real with ourselves, be real with other people, be real with God. Uh, you know, we're commanded at Galatians 6, 1, we're going to get into this in the coming weeks. We're commanded in the love of Christ to bear one another's burdens. Well, how can we do that if nobody shares their burdens? And I get it. I, listen, I understand there, there's things that are just so personal that you do have to be really careful about that. But I do feel like a lot of things we, we can share with other people that we trust. And, and the thing is, we rob other people of a blessing when we don't share our burdens. You, you can't, nobody can bear burdens that have never been shared. And when it comes to taking our burdens to the Lord, we're commanded and encouraged in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 uh, to come boldly, not, not arrogantly, but boldly to the throne of grace to find help. We have a high priest who is touched uh, with the feelings of our infirmities. We can go to God and be real. We can go to people and we can be real. Obviously, if those people can be trusted, I would definitely kind of put in parentheses more mature Christians. Uh, but man, I think that's something that's been lost in our church. And, you know, I think even, even about Leah in this situation. You know, the way that she was raised and the way that she was taught go, kind of goes back to this whole Southern Christian Christianity culture thing where don't be a burden, smile and say everything's all right, even if it's a flat-out lie, and don't be a burden to others. And, and I know I probably shared this before, but it, it's just a great illustration of what I'm talking about. But, you know, when this stuff first started, and she was just in agony for the first two months, and we finally get out to this specialist in Los Angeles. It's Dr. Shavink. This is, I mean, this is the, this is a big cheese here. I mean, this is George Clooney's doctor, uh, world-renowned physician. We finally get to see this guy. And she's just been miserable. And he walks in the door, and I, I don't remember what country he was from. He was it's either Norway or Sweden, one of those Norse countries. And he walks in there, and he says, how are you doing today? You know, and that, that accent. And she goes, I'm just fine. And he goes... Well, what are you doing here? <laughs> what are you doing? And I'm, I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, who are you? And what have you done with my wife? And it's just crazy. It was so unbelievable. And I thought, you know, you, I even told her, I said, listen, if you want real help, you need to be real. 
Like these people need to know you're like, you don't have to like lay on the floor and, you know, hire a filler to follow you around, but you need to be real with, with how you feel here, you know? And uh, it's just, I mean, it's a disease to feel like you have to act like nothing's wrong. That just adds more burden to you. Um, So we need to be real with God, with ourselves, with other people. Um, And listen, we don't, we don't have to, certainly we don't need to be disrespectful with the Lord, but my goodness, He already knows how you feel anyway. He already knows your heart. So why not just be honest and lay it out there for Him? Lord, I'm angry. Lord, I'm hurt. Lord, I'm confused. Lord, I feel alone. Lord, I don't feel like you're hearing my prayers. I mean, lay lay it out there. Don't forget to worship him. Don't forget to be thankful. Don't forget to be reverent. But for the sake of all that's good and decent, be real. Be open to him. I think think our prayer lives really suffer and we're not capable of doing that. Um. I would say acknowledge both your losses and God's right to give and take. That's exactly what Job did. Acknowledge both God and grief. And don't be controlled over fears and assumptions about both the situation at hand and the future. And so, uh, you know, what is, what is the Christian response to trials? I, be real. Don't, don't be fake. Be real. Don't, don't act like that you have to put on a show or a facade for your God. I just, I don't think that's helpful. And I think, I think we see one of the most godly men in all of the Bible that just bore it out there. And God never condemned him for that. God never, as, as uh, Matthew Henry said, he cursed his day. He's just reporting the news. Things are bad. I'm struggling. I wish for death. But he never cursed God. Or denied God his right to give and take like he should. And so, um, man, I just think sometimes we do get so spiritually minded that we're not of any earthly good. And so unload it. Don't, don't tote it around like it's some kind of virtue. Um, and I believe this, is, this should be our response to trials. And so, uh, if you would, let's all, let's all stand tonight.